This is Counter Stories, a co-production of the Counter Stories crew, the other media group, and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Welcome to Counter Stories, program by people of color, for people of color, and everybody else. I'm Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the State of Minnesota. Any comments or viewpoints that I share are solely my own and should not be attributed to my employer. I'm Anthony Galloway, senior partner at Dendros Group and pastor of St. Mark AME Church in Duluth, Minnesota. And I'm Don Eubanks, associate at Dendros Group and member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indian. And Hilly Lee, our other Counter Stories crew member, is unable to uh, meet with us today. Uh, and we're wishing her the very best and we'll sure to see her very soon at the next uh, segment here. Hey, folks, you know, I, I'm as I think about what's going on in our world these days, um, maybe we want to talk about disrupting stereotypes or the narratives that we run across in daily life, whether it's by media, or whether it's by books, history books whether it's by movies, uh, newspapers. I mean, really, it's a wide net in terms of the amount of information that we receive as individuals uh, that either frame up uh, race issues correctly or they perpetuate stereotypes that are very harmful to our community members. Um, And I think, you know, if we go down that path, uh, certainly we all, as we know, um, as humans, we have... And, and I don't exclude myself from this, we have implicit bias, right? We, we have a bias of some sort. If you're human, you're vulnerable, no matter how well-versed you believe you are in the area of race uh, or racial justice, race equity, you still are uh, prone to have implicit bias because by virtue of the fact that you are human, uh, we have that vulnerability in all of us, including myself, uh, having been in this sphere for, for over 30 years. So when I think about uh, that as a topic and going down that path, um, I, I wanna throw it out there for both you, Anthony and Don to weigh in on what comes up for you as, as we think about that topic. Uh, and I wanna share my comments as well, but as I'm hosting, I, you know, I, I, I'm going to invite you into the fold here. Come on in and, and, and tell me what's on your mind. Well, you know, I, I love how you frame that because we, we all swim in all these waters. It's one of the things that our um, kind of dysfunctional racial and cultural discourse um, really carries with it. And that is that we, we put up these binaries, right, that say... This is this is this is an issue, and all these folks are bad, and all these folks are good, and all those kinds of things. And we don't we don't think about the fact that we're all swimming in these waters. And so I got to think, you know, about I, I can definitely talk about the many times that I've had to stand in a space and disrupt predictable patterns, assumptions, stereotypes about my own community. However, you know, that also means that I have to start looking at the things that I myself perpetuate. If it wasn't for the fact that Big brother Don Eubanks, who I was just telling with earlier, I have to, brother Don, you, 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 Mr. Don, Elder Don, <laughs> you'd be uncle if we were just in, in, in my own home space. And so I, I, I struggle with the qualifier because, because I ain't out here trying to call my, you know, folks out by their first name. But it, we were talking even, even amongst that space, if it wasn't for your constant connection and relationship in my spheres, I would often bypass moments where folks um, invisibilize Native peoples, right? I have a I have something that pops up in my brain now because of our interactions that make me go, wait, pause. Here we go again. Here's another thing that we're doing. The stereotype that Native peoples are are in large part disappeared, um, you know, intentionally or unintentionally. So so that's one one stereotypical thing that pops up for me all the time that I have to check. You know, in addition to the fact that we internalize stuff even about ourselves, you will be surprised mm-hmm. how long I spent putting forward this notion of the absent black father based on the erroneous and messed up report that it's rooted in, you know, not understanding the fact that while, you know, an absent parent is a big deal, it, absolutely. 
this idea that somehow it's a particular problem for black communities is just not backed up by any data in any stretch. And it's a stereotype that I continually hear and for a long time perpetuated until I had to stop and realize somebody asked me, a friend of mine asked me, you know, I heard you talk about the absent fathers and how we need to address that. Uh, What is your experience growing up? And my experience growing up, all of my friends, all of the folks around me in my circles, everybody's got fathers around, father figures, and may not necessarily be married or in the same household, but they around and involved. And so I had to even adjust in my own space that my own lived experience debunked the narrative, and yet I was still pushing that stereotype. So, mm-hmm. Anthony, I mean, <clears throat> excuse me, I mean, if I was to pick that theme up, um, yeah, for me, it's... it's uh, for me, it's always, I think it's been one that's rooted in um, income. And that dialogue was created, um, I think, out of um, the old AFDC program that was in place, the old welfare program we had, where where you um, mothers and children couldn't collect that money if there was a male around. So I think that the stereotype that the hype of um, missing black fathers was rooted in, in that those types of programs. It was those kind of arguments that led, that helped led, well, not necessarily the one of missing men and missing fathers, because your experience is the same as mine. When I looked around and all the black families I saw, there was a mom and a dad, right? I mean, there there were aunts and uncles. There were cousins. I mean, the, the, all the black families I saw had those things firmly in place. I had a mother and a father. So, you know, so, so this idea that I, you know, this, there's a whole segment of the black community that's missing is one of those kind of misleading kind of, of, uh, data that was used at one point in time. And, um, and I think it's perpetuated, um, perpetuated this ongoing stereotype of missing black fathers. You know what I mean? And, 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 uh, but I, it was backed up. Well, just to your point, it was even backed up by President Obama, right? There, yeah, there were speeches yeah. that President Obama even gave talking about this this huge issue. And I love that you pulled forward the correlative challenge that we have in that it is an issue amongst a, po- a, a, a subset of populations. But one of the things that we often talk about in Minnesota amongst other folks, black folks, is that in Minnesota, you don't get the rich tapestry and diversity within black community uh, spaces. You you know, a thing I've started saying now to folks is if you're still carrying around that myth, you need to know more black folks. Right? That's right. Yeah. Um, you know, when you think about it, it's the family unit that you both are talking about, but it's also what Don hit on was income, right? It's this, this perpetual uh, stereotype of coming from a deficit-based approach, right? That all black folks fall into that all black folks are poor and low income. All black folks have housing issues. All black folks and families lack a a father figure, dot, 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 right? Similarly, in my community, it would be all Latinos are undocumented, right? All Latinos have immigration status, right? All Latinos were born outside of uh, the area. I mean, those are stereotypes and they sound harsh to maybe our listeners, but my lived experience is that people are shocked when um, they know or they learn that I'm not, that I didn't have an immigration uh, status issue, that I was not undocumented ever in my life. And that, um, quote unquote, your English is so good. And comma, you're, you are so, you're so articulate, you know, you're, you're so good, you know. Uh, well, that only should come as a surprise if they have some underlying beliefs that are radically different than our lived experiences, than what what is actually happening in our lives, right? When I think about how we can then go down the path of debunking that and disrupting that. And too often 
people get really paralyzed, for lack of a better word. And what can they do? How do they let go of this? And and how do they begin to um, overcome these stereotypes? And for me, and and I want to get down into that space with both of you here. For me, uh, there are many approaches, of course, but kind of the low hanging fruit in my mind is things that they can do on the regular basis, on a daily basis. They don't even have to step outside their house that can begin to counter that narrative in their in their mind, right? If you're thinking that and your stereotype is that Black families are all run by single parents, then expose yourself to literature, to movies, to TV programs that begin to formulate a different approach in your mind of families that are uh, both parents, they're middle income, you know, they have careers, much like anyone else, right? I mean, if I look at my network, Absolutely. I can see the wide breadth and spectrum of folks and families in terms of professions and education and income. But guess what? That holds true for the white population as well. But somehow the media doesn't focus on that and and keep that as a default identity for the white community by way of TV programs or uh, movies or news pieces, right? Uh, They tend to be asset-based versus deficit-based when it comes to our communities, our respective BIPOC communities. So essentially what you're saying is go go check and see what folks from that community are saying about that community as opposed to folks who are generalized yeah. from the outside like i'm not i'm not just, i'm not reduct i'm not trying to be reductive but like what you what you said for me you know immediately made me think about the fact that how many times do we stop and check our assumed notions against a credible source i think i mean that's what you're you're telling us to do is is to check our sources you know uh uh, Luce, one of the th- there was something you said, um, and I and you've got now many speaking engagements where you've said brilliant things, and so I, I'm running out of, I, I can't I can't place it pinpointed specifically, but um, one of the things that you said to a particular group, you was like you you asked the question, uh, um, what is the unemployment rate amongst um, African Americans in Minnesota? And somebody threw out a number and it was, you know, on, you know, it was on par with 13, 14%, you know, was very, you know, very different than our white peers. But then you ask the question, so what does that tell you? What does that number tell you? And you let folks kind of pull things forward. Um, oh, I'm, 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 I want to say it was the, it was Manip. It was the, the Minnesota educational part. I think it was MMEP at the time. And, and what I loved about that is it forced folks to have to start to go, well, if if there's a 13 percentage percent of, of folks experiencing this thing, that means that the vast majority of black folks have some sort of job, maybe not the jobs that we need, not on par with our white peers. There's just disparities in all of these different areas. But that counters very clearly and specifically this narrative and stereotype that often gets bandied about that 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 there's there's a preponderance or a majority of us who are not taxpaying working citizens in the United States. That alone, that number alone starts to erode that stereotype. And I'm just wondering, what are some of the places for you all, to your earlier question, Luz, where you know you can go to that source and get a much more authentic and and accurate report back on the conditions happening in your communities? I know one of mine is a spokesman recorder in Black Press, but what are some, some that come up for you all? For me, um, I think about some national and some local. On a national level, I think about the Root uh, uh, newsletter. You know, I have a subscription to that and I I get my articles in a a few times a week. Uh, I think about End in Country Today uh, and I also make sure that I read that. Locally, uh, there's La Prensa, uh, which is um, local news media, Latino as well. Um, I, I have to admit, I haven't done as much in our uh, Pan-Asian community, you know, and I have work to do in that. Um, and that's just news sources. I, I, you know, we can explore other outlets, uh, but I'd love to hear from Don. I'm sure you've got some ideas and, and what you're well, as well. I mean, you know, not, not much more than what you two have mentioned, because I 
I get the spokesman. I get the circle. I get Indian country today. Um, I don't get, I don't have like a, a subscription or something that I get regularly from the Latino Hispanic community and also from the Asian community. Those are the two communities that I'm, I'm still searching for a reliable source. You know, I mean, I, I mean, that's one thing that I would always kind of try to explain to my students is, is to when they're trying to learn about a particular community that it takes work to find reliable sources. You know what I mean? To, to, to dig, to get the background because often I'll get information that I'll look at, I'll read, but then I'll, I'll check around with the connections I have from those communities to find out if it's legit. So, you know what I mean? Because, because I'm not a member of that community. I have to check sometimes the information that I receive and, and, um, and, and, you know, so I'm doing that like with the Somali community and I'm doing that with some of the newer communities that are, that are in the Twin Cities that I also am learning about. And so it takes time for me to kind of ferret out and, and wait, you know, kind of weed my way through till I feel like I'm getting legitimate information. Does that make sense? I mean, and, and, um, two things yeah, you just ahead, said. Yeah are huge, right? Two things that you just said are huge for me. One is you said, I go to people. You actually have folks you can call, connect with when something cross. But then you also mentioned, you know, this this idea that there's something that makes you go, mm, that makes you suspicious or dubious of what was said in the first place. That to me also speaks to your connection with those folks. You can't replace the people. How many of us actually go and talk to and have those relationships. And I don't mean just like casual acquaintances. I mean, folks, you know, who are close enough that they can come in your house and make themselves a sandwich. Like that is real relationship. <laughs> I'm talking about just folks who I can Especially name. Especially fried bologna, man. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but those relationships, you know, and, and we can charge some of it to our proximity because many of our communities end up in proximities um, that are close and dense together, largely because of some of our experiences historically, you know, through marginalization, through, through, through poverty, through all these things like that. We've all, you know, there's that, Con, you know, we can't, we're not going to go into all of that here today, but there's that thing that puts us in proximity. It also puts us in detentions. Oh, <laughs> and so big time. Yeah. I, I think about what you just said and, and being able to call out in my head, I'm going, how many times have, have white folks made that call to folks they thought they were in close relationship with? And they're like, man, I'm not about to do your work for you. But at the same time, you could turn around and say that to a person. I'm just, I'm sorry, I'm going to spill some tea. You're going to say that to a person, to, to a person, a dominant cultural space and it's, and it's extractive. But when I turn around, you turn around and call me for some reason, it pulls from a very different tank and I'm willing to have that, that conversation and even spend hours going there. And it doesn't feel as extractive in the same way. So there's, you also brought up some tensions for me that if I'm going to be real about myself, I'm like, I don't give the same amount of grace. And, and, and there's a whole history to that that we've talked about in other shows, but yeah. That disruption it's, is you're right. It's it's our lived experiences on the daily where there's so much extraction happening during our you know work day, and um, you you know you kind of need you you need a break from it for one, uh, and you're giving like you said uh, another BIPOC person benefit of the doubt, and and that it, they're not coming from that viewpoint. You know, I want to make sure that I do mention Sahan Journal. I, I thought mm. about it after I turned it over to you. Um, Don, you know, Mukhtar uh, Ibrahim uh, is doing a, a heck of a job there, formerly NPR, formerly from Star Tribune. I think that's another really uh, valuable one. And then there's a Asia, Asian American uh, press. And I, I'm familiar with it, but I, I haven't subscribed. So I'm going to call myself out and make sure that I do that going forward. So that's media. So let's let's do a similar take around other things, um, such as whether it be authors or uh, podcasts or TV so programs. Go here's, ahead. here's one, one problematic area as we think about debunking the stereotypes, right? 
in that is, you know, you want to debunk the stereotype, but then, okay, all right, I'm just going to go there and y'all can, y'all can get a piece apart. So I was sitting, it was in the front of St. James AME Church when I was on uh, part of the pulpit staff there before I was appointed to, to pastor myself. And we were had just got done cleaning the church. Bunch of brothers on the front. When I say brothers, I mean for, for, for audiences who don't know what that means, that's my direct reference to black men in particular um, in this case. Now, brothers use even intersectionally in other times. There's nuance. That's a whole different episode. But black men sitting in the front, and we've got watermelon and chicken. Right? Somebody picked up a bucket of chicken, and we had a watermelon sitting in the fridge. We had just got done cleaning. We were going to sit out the front, play some cards, eat that watermelon and, and that chicken. And I remember us getting it all together and making the decision to go inside. We were not about mm-hmm. to eat that on the front steps. We were not about to eat that in the view of public. And we didn't have the conversation. We just all instinctively looked at the, what was going on around and we took the tables back inside and nobody talked about, we had no conversation about this, but we were all in agreement. And, and then halfway through whatever we were doing, we just start fall out laughing. And we get into this conversation about, um, after the laugh, about the fact that that's a stereotype that we all knew was going on. And we all were like, you ain't trying to be out here to be the poster child for that stereotype. Knowing that everybody and their mama likes chicken and watermelon, right? Regardless of racial background and culture, but it's just a thing that folks like. It's good, right? But we can't do it. In, we, we could not bring ourselves to do it in public right? Because of the feeding of that stereotype. And the reason I bring that up is that there are shows, there are entertainment pieces that will play on some of these internal stereotypes but from a very different point of trying to perpetuate and one is trying to pull it out or, or break apart or, or, or lean on in an in internal joke way that is on full display. And so I get in a problematic with it. You have a show like Blackish who tried to use those stereotypes as a, as a sale to, un, to debunk and push and and cause some awkwardness around them. But then you've got, you know, things like Medea, the, the Tyler Perry series. There mm-hmm. are a whole lot of stereotypical things that we laugh at about that that are a play on these stereotypes, but it gets real problematic because I've got folks who will look at what happened there, get comfortable, come into black spaces, play on those stereotypes, and completely miss either the joke or the the sarcasm around it and get themselves into some very deep <laughs> relational trouble. So like there's because that's something that comes up for nuanced, me. Anthony, right. I mean they missed the nuance of that yep. culture of that community and the sensitivity and, uh, to it. Yeah. So so yep. that's why we can watch programs like that because we understand those nuances and what and what it's trying to address. Much like, you know, I I, I you know, we record these our our podcasts virtually. But, you know, we are able to see one another. And, and unfortunately for the audience, they can't see the background. I was just about to ask right you about now, your background right? on the exactly. same point. So, <laughs> yeah. so the background shot I have on my Zoom is a, a picture of these four young Native American characters in this new uh, series called Reservation Dogs. And Reservation Dogs is a prime example of a program created by community for community. And I can watch that program and laugh my butt off because I understand all the stereotypical nuances that it's dealing with. And it's doing it in such a, it's doing it in a fresh way. The only other, um, I think, program that came close to that was by um, Alexi back when he put out, helped put out the movie uh, Smoke Signals. It it yeah. did a similar type thing. So, I mean, from our, so from our community's perspectives, we can look at those, those, those type of shows and understand those nuances. How do we, how does individuals from outside our community get that? See, and, and I mean, I, I'm, I'm bringing that up because you know, we often say or, you know, we always encourage individuals to kind of reach out. And, yeah, I don't think movies or I don't think movies are the correct vehicle for individuals to learn about someone else's culture, period. I just don't think that's 
a media that should be used. I, for one, there's a new program that that PBS is covering, or TPT, take your pick. And it's called, um, oh, I forget the name of it, but I've been I've watched the first two episodes because I'm learning it's about uh Muslims have all Muslims in the United States. It, it's a it's a PBS program that's been showing the past couple weeks on a Muslim woman and another individual as they travel across the United States, engaging other Muslim communities, various communities throughout the United States. It's heavy duty. I mean, I I've been I'm glued to this because it's it's presenting things about that community that I'm learning. You know, I mean, I've just been enamored by this by this program. Um and so I look to see who helped produce that and it's coming it's being produced by folks from that community right sometimes some of those programs you have to kind of stand back because you know 20 30 years ago those programs were about us not from us you know what i mean but now they're being produced by us to educate others about our communities see and so i think I th- that's key don is is Look at the source. And you said that earlier as well. And and I'm going to push back on your statement that you don't think the movies are good venue for people to learn. I think it depends on what movie and who what the subject matter is and who uh, is, a you know, the writer and executive director or producer of that, that uh, that there are largely speaking, I think a lot of the movies um would not be something that I would recommend. Um, but there's, there are, there's a sliver, I would say, of the universe where I would venture to say that I would feel comfortable um, and with some TV programs as well, if they're centered in, in our subjects and they're centered in our lived experiences. That's where I'm coming from. And certainly there, we can, Documentaries tend to be, of course, better in terms of accuracy and in terms of uh, goals and content, right? So that's a given. But I guess right now I'm challenging this conversation to go to a place where people want, you know, as, as generally speaking, people want things that are easy, that are enjoyable, that are fun, um, and if they if they can learn at the same time, all that much better, right? But I think um, in my circle, at least, when I've said to folks, when people are like, "What kind of programs do you watch, Luce?" You know, and I'll say, "Well, I love documentaries. I love this and that." You know, I see the eyes kind of glaze over and and roll up, like, "Oh God!" You know, of course you would say that kind of a thing. So you know, I try to to be more inclusive in that sense to say, you know, it's not unique to just documentaries. There are programs out there and, and I'm going to throw this out there and, and just for your reaction, I think about the Wonder Years, you know, the original, the remake of it, the original um, setting of that was with Fred Savage. And, and, you know, we were all younger back in the day and I didn't watch a whole lot of that. I don't remember why. I think it was a scheduling issue. Probably this is before Netflix and streaming devices and programs. So I started, I picked it up. Uh, the Wonder Years, a remake. This time, Don Cheadle is is the narrator and is primarily an all black cast. And the issues that they they touch on, I think, are really poignant. You know, and it goes to what we're talking about in terms of debunking these stereotypes. It talks about uh, being an acid based approach. You know, and and looking at the role that families can have and have had in society. And that to me, I mean, and, and, and the characters are of course, very endearing. Uh, the boy, the, the main protagonist, his character is, is, is really endearing. But I think about things, experiences like that, where people can begin to challenge their, their stereotypes of what the media and other programs have taught them and juxtapose that with what they're seeing in a way that hopefully puts them in a position that they begin to question their understandings and then question their exposure and at least open the door to their mind to say, you know, what I've been watching in the past is probably 
pretty limited. You know, when I ask folks in, in common space, when I'm teaching, I'll ask folks about what are their favorite programs? What are their favorite books? What are their favorite this or that? And without, if I'm in a, a primarily dominant space, without exception, you know, it's pretty much dominant led programs and movies and newspapers and media. So it's one way for me to just get people in closer proximity to the content that they should be watching because then they can grow on this journey of what they can understand. You're listening to Counter Stories. I'm Luz Maria Frias with co-hosts Don Eubanks and Anthony Galloway. This show is supported by Ampers and the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. For a full conversation, please visit counterstories.com. Well, but to, to what you just shared then, you know, picking that apart, um, my movies tend to be, if we were, if we we're going to look at this from the standpoint of like what uses bigger words, <laughs> right? Well, what's going to use them, right? Movie, movies by nature of one being fantasy, being rooted in entertainment and things like that tend to me to be, for the most part, not again, when I say movies, I'm talking about specifically not documentaries. Um, but but the, the stuff that is entertaining requires a, a, a level of nuance. And to me, there needs to be a caveat disclaimer there that this is likely not going to be the high level deep dive on the culture of a particular area, um, except for the movies that are specifically about that. And then, of course, documentaries have, you know, are, are, are a level of what I say, depth or rigor. Um, but then... In all of these, there is no proxy for talking to folks directly and for talking to folks uh, in, in many different spaces. If I only talk to Black folks in the Minnesota, in particular the places where Black folks reside in Minnesota, I am not going to get anywhere near a picture of Black life in America. It just ain't going to happen. It'd be the mm -hmm. same if I just went to Tuskegee. And yep. even though the mayor's Black, the fire chief is Black, everybody Black in on Black, all the way down, it's a chocolate city, right? But that still is not going to be representative of the Black experience in the United States, right? And I said that, and just notice, I said America the first time, United States the second time, right? And that's intentional. That first statement doesn't give you any nuance of the fact that I'm talking about all of America, the 80% of Black captive Africans who were taken to the Caribbean and South America during the transatlantic slave trade that they're trying to get rid of referring to as the transatlantic slave trade in, in Texas. So, so, you know, there's... I, I just I I get really nervous around entertainment being a marker, even though there's stuff we can glean from that. There is no if if you glean something from that and you don't check it against the filter, real relationship with people from that community, you're often going to set yourself up to get to to perpetuate stereotype. Yeah, and where I'm coming from, I see what your point is, Anthony. And where I'm coming from is it opens the door to the curiosity of exploring more, right, and beginning to see more and learn more about areas that you have not taken the time or effort to pursue. You know, say for instance, if, <laughs> and you know, this is dating uh, back a number of years with the Black Panther, right? When we had that conversation, you know, the film Black Panther, uh, we talked about all the different aspects of what that film called out and how most people didn't really capture it probably the first time, maybe the second time that they watched the film, right? But given our lived experiences and the space that we have and how we're trained, we did. And we spotted a lot of that out. And even, you know, beginning to understand that the closest, and, and this is, of course, my interpretation, I'm not impugning on anyone else, the closest I can see in iteration of uh, Wakanda is HBCUs, right? And having people understand the value and importance of HBCUs and self-identity, uh, self-esteem, self-confidence, but also uh, coming to it from and honoring people's brilliance from the start and having that level of groundedness, right? So I think about stuff like that where yes, largely speaking, I think you're you're you know I agree with your statement, but I, I do. I can come up with examples here and there where they are learning experiences. They're, it's about exposure more than anything about having the viewer understand that their world has been more limited and filtered than it needs to be. And this is an invitation and an experience that at least hopefully 
persuades them to open the door further and expose them to a world way beyond that they were originally in. Let's let's give a good old counter stories disclaimer to that then. Um, as you explore, because I like what you're saying. I like what you're saying. As you explore, just know that you need to explore in conversation and in connection with folks for actually from that community so that you can explore their content and you don't get set up and put in a scenario where you're going to be exploring these hands. Because I, <laughs> yeah. I have had many a times where folks, folks will take something as law. And that's, I think maybe that's the, that's the big piece in there, right? Is to, is to always investigate that against the folks who are actually doing the talking and the presenting um, and, and raising the question, because there's a lot of beauty to be had in that regard. That scene in Black Panther, where they're in the, the Korean casino, underground casino, and even their clothing, right? Represents the black flag, the African flag, the Pan-African flag. You'd miss something like that without conversation with folks with that nuance to Don's point. However, I've seen folks also take things from from that or take things from, you know, classic movies like Selma and go, oh, that's how they do. Or even dare say, Don, Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> I Stuff was happening in, in not Reservoir Dogs, um, uh, what's, the, what's, the, what's the name of the show that's in your background? Yeah. yeah. Res- Reservoir Reservation. Dogs. Reservation. Reservation Dogs. dogs. And, oh, and, reservation dogs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Not res- um, not the not the original, not the movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Not 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 Clinton Tarantino. But, exactly, yeah. exactly. But but I look at that, and there were things that happened in there that I recognized because of my relationship and connections and conversations with Native friends. And then there were other things where I'm like, huh, I'm laughing at this. This is funny. I wonder if I'd be. I wonder if I was watching this with one of my Native friends, where they would be laughing and I wouldn't be. And those questions even registered for me to pop up. And then I have somebody to go and have that conversation with, right? And and over some food and kick it and, and go, hey, so this this came up and we can break down the episode together. There's a check to that that I think is is pertinent across all of our discussion here. And I think that one of one of the it, there's a there's a thread that's flowing through the conversation that you and Luz have brought up that you know, keeps jumping in my head here as you two are talking. And Anthony, you touched on it. Luz, you touched on it. But Anthony, you really brought that out because it, it, when you talk about, you know, when I talk about my own experience being Black Indigenous, mm-hmm. but and growing up here in Minnesota, where it was at the time that I was growing up, it was 98, 95% white, right? And I remember... Um, the, I was in high school, and we went to Washington D.C. for a close-up program. Right, this is a this is kind of a political program that that um, interested youth throughout the United States, um, if they're lucky enough, can can attend a week long excursion to D.C. to meet their congressional um, into elected officials. So we were there for a week. It was then that I found out that D.C., and this was 670, 71, you know, D.C. was over 70% black, Mm -hmm. something I was not aware of. I walked into a department store that would have been comparable to Dayton's, you know, Dayton's in downtown Minneapolis at that time in in the 70s. And I walked in that store and I had to stop. I literally stopped because for the first time in my life, I was in a space where every every employee, every manager, every clerk was black. And not just that, but all the people that were shopping were black. I literally had to stop because it was a complete reversal hmm. of where I came from. I had never, ever experienced anything like that. And I remember having that shock for about 10 or 15 seconds and then going, oh, my God. I, you know, I didn't know how to act, right? <laughs> I, I had never been in a space that was all black. But I bring that up because that experience was different than when a buddy of mine took me down to his hometown in Park in Arkansas which is 30 miles outside of West Memphis, right? And so in or 
being down south and or being in a community in Chicago and or being, you know, all those experiences were and or different from from where my dad is from, from Des Moines, Iowa, and the black community down there. Mm-hmm. Each one of those experiences was different, and each one had their own cultural nuances. It reminds me of the differences between, let's just say here in Minnesota, between the Ojibwe and the, the Dakota, right? There are cultural language there are cultural differences. There are language differences. And then when you throw on <laughs> all the other different tribes in the United States. So, and I'm not throwing this out um, to make it harder for folks, but to help them understand that that I think one of the disservices that this country has done in its explanation of, of others is that it's categorized um, many different groups under one heading, right? Yeah. And so even in this program, we have a tendency to use it. So, mm-hmm. you know, black people, well, that... <laughs> it's, it's a it's a pan-racial moniker to, co- to cover many different ethnicities and cultural experiences exactly. in a particular Let, group. We say Latino, and that cover, you know, and Luz, Luz talks about her experience, which differs from, you know, from the guests that we had on, um, two of my former colleagues, right? Sonia and Elena, that you know, one one was Puerto Rican, the other one was from South America. They're all Latina women, but with totally different experiences, cultural experiences. Same with the Native American community. Same in the Black community. And so, um, so I think you know to help folks understand is that one they have to they have to kind of debunk the area or debunk this idea that when we use the term Asian, <laughs> that there is no one definition of all the various different members of that we have clumped under that heading. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and I throw that out because it means it, it's a lot of work to learn about all those different cultural groups because there are no, there's no, there's no one common denominator. I don't think, you know, in the American Indian community, we can't even agree between the six different tribes here in Minnesota. <laughs> but you know, that make up the Minnesota Chippewa tribe. So you know, Don, to to your point, that I, I so so we've named checking against the community, we've named going to the sources of information by the folks from those communities in order to debunk and combat stereotypes. And you just added another layer um, on this, and that is debunking this um, this this idea of, a, of pan-ethnicity, right? This generalization of all the folks in a particular group, even though, even, even though <laughs> when we zoom out to our highest level, which is about big picture trends, we see that there's commonality across some uh, some of our our racialized communities, but I think one of the things that challenges that already is what you were saying about Asian community spaces. When we look at data for Asian communities, if it's aggregate, everybody who's identified in that marker, the numbers look very different than when you disaggregate Southeast Asian folks who tend to have outcomes much more on par with their Black, Brown, and Indigenous peers. So, so, so there's a comp- there's a complexity here, and and I and I hear us saying that that one of the ways that we need to, to to be thinking about debunking these stereotypes is to to understand or to leave room for the fact that there's a more complex narrative and experience than stereotypes usually allow themselves to 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 give us even in what we consume. And and to the core of that of what both of you are saying, I mean we have to unpack what a stereotype is. I mean it's basically it's it's an oversimplified opinion, and I'm, I'm now going to read from uh, Marin Whipster, uh, a standardized mental picture that is held in common by members of a group and that represents an oversimplified opinion, prejudice, attitude, or uncritical judgment. So we've said repeatedly here that we need people to be critical. We need people to begin to question the accuracy of information that comes their way when they're looking at these stereotypes, when they're being um, exposed to it by way of any type of media that we've mentioned and any media that's out there, right? So the way to get around there is to be a critical thinker, to be analytical, to challenge what those assumptions are, to challenge that against what you've seen, but better than that, challenge that whether your own lived experiences 
have contributed to those stereotypes because none of us can be off the hook either, right? Certainly right. we have, we're fed this information. What we do with that information is as equally important, right? We can, we need to be uh, very disciplined about being critical, about asking questions, you know? And I know for some Minnesotans that's uncomfortable because that means then you have to disagree with folks and you have to openly disagree. And, and we know uh, the, the pressures that comes with Minnesota nice on that. But at the same time, the reality of it is the only way, the primary way that we learn is to have in a, to be exposed to uh, information that is different than what you hold for yourself. Right. So that in and of itself is a disagreement. Right. And so we don't learn if we're in a room that's an echo chamber echoing everything that we hold as a belief, right? True We're indeed. not going to grow that way. True we indeed. grow like, by, right. We grow by disagreement and we grow here, you know, we're challenging each other with our statements that we've made. And that's the way we grow together and we grow individually as, as our own person to be able to then understand the complexities and the nuances that exist in real life. I'll so give another story. Lose, I, oh, I have to real quick. How 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 do individuals who find themselves in close knit communities like you just described, where there is no cultural difference, there is no cultural nuance, they um, and to do what you're suggesting would actually you know, begin to ostracize them from their community. That, how do we, how, you know, and what I'm talking about is, you know, we have pockets of, of communities in Minnesota that are very small, that are very homogeneous, and it's very difficult for individuals to venture outside of that without being ostracized by their neighbors, by their church, by whatever. And so how do, how do those, what do those individuals do? So, you know, I got to jump into this space just because of there's, there, I'm having a lot of these, these types of conversation as a pastor, um, you know, in, in greater Minnesota, I'm doing a lot more work in greater Minnesota than I did, than I did before. And one of the things that comes up regularly, and and I and I and I teach on this. So we'll plug we'll plug a, a session that I do later. But in terms of kind of raising consciousness in there, one of the things that keeps coming up, even in Don and you and I have talked about this in our in our work as IDI facilitators for that intercultural development inventory. That, that when this comes up, I often find how find it amazing how many folks don't actually see the things that they do each and every day as cultural. Because we've had such a norming of one group of folks, we 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 default to those. To your earlier point about needing to 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 debunk these pan ethnicities markers, what I'm finding with small white towns, predominantly white towns, I would say we don't have. We're all homogenous. We're all in the same boat. We don't have these things. I, I question that and start to say, okay, well, let's let's talk about what you are saying is not necessarily culture, and then we actually realize that we do have quite a bit of divergence in there, but we don't call it culture, so it doesn't come onto the radar. I offer for folks that in one of the guideposts of the training that I do called Building Racial Consciousness, where we talk about racial socialization, I, I get us into a conversation about what it is that we do, like what we, we name as our own cultural space. And when we do that work, it may not it may not be easily transferable to a different racialized group or an ethnic group. It may be so vastly different what what i what what we end up talking about are these are are the differences that actually are present and the goal is not to say that so then you're like everybody else but the goal is to say just like you navigate those differences we seem to fail to apply those when we go outside of our cultural context and the grace that you would give within these minute differences that you have to think about to to to, to pull up do actually serve you as tools. So when I ask the same question, if you were in community on this issue that you brought up before, how would you address it? And the answer that they give is actually pretty thoughtful. And the question becomes, why do you not apply that when you're outside of that cultural context to other folks? And now we get into a very deep conversation around mental models, how deep these stereotypes go. 
And so I think there's a there's a space to 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 play with in that regard, um, even for folks who think that they don't have access to a, a, a different way of seeing the world. I agree with you, Anthony, in, in the spaces that I've been at is I first try to bring in the proximity to themselves and see the commonalities of it, because I think based on just um, how some folks view race and racial differences is they only focus on the differences. They don't focus first on the commonality. And I I center it first on the you know humanity and building the, the understanding of humanity in both and across uh, all our, our BIPOC and white communities, uh, dominant communities, if you will, uh, and then start to bring that in. Because when folks have a closer proximity, when they feel that it is not as distant or as foreign, quote unquote, and I use that uh, very cautiously, um, people's guards go down. You know, they they tend to be less defensive about stuff. They tend to be more curious and welcoming, right? And I tell folks, look, sometimes you're overcomplicating this stuff. It doesn't have to be that difficult, you know? Um, You need to get out of your head. You need to get out of your way and begin to see the actual reality of, of how it is rather than how it's been painted to be, right? And if you give yourself that grace and if you give yourself that permission to unload, you know, this divisiveness that you've also bought into, right? I mean, the whole the whole concept of race is divisive because it's a it's a construct. It doesn't exist, right? So if you can get people to just really focus on and ground themselves, uh, that's where I see progress. Go ahead, Don. Well, I was just going to say because now you're now we're almost coming, you know, three sixty because. What you're talking about now, you know, even for those of us who come from our various different ethnic backgrounds and different cultural backgrounds, you know, population of um, black and indigenous and other populations of color, um, often, you know, there's a lot of work that we need to do that that everybody needs, depending on when you were born and what you were brought up with. But, you know, using myself as an example, there was a lot of unpacking that I had to do as I was growing up because all, all everything that I learned about who I was as a black person and who I was as a Native American was perpetuated by the dominant culture. So it took me. I, yeah, and what brought that to mind was thinking of a program like Amos and Andy. And I think of Amos and Andy, and I remember the joy it used to bring to me when I was a young boy watching that program because, one, it was a program that had almost nothing but all black folks, right? And it was a comedy. And I was, and I used to enjoy watching that program. But then as I got older and realized the background to Amos and Andy, then I had to begin to start debunking <laughs> those stereotypes that that program perpetuated. And so, and I use that as an example because oftentimes, Deep, even us in our own communities are impacted by those stereotypes and those biases. That's all we knew at one point in time in our life, right? Until we were able to break those down and realize that those were mechanisms used to kind of keep us down until we debunked, decolonize, and, 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 and had to step back. So even even folks in our own community, there may be things that that they need to do in order to get themselves in a much better place. There's a lot of education that has to happen in debunking a lot of these myths and these stereotypes that we've been perpetuated with. And um, so, I, you know, it, <laughs> I see you nodding your head, Anthony, and jump in there. Well, I, this I think that's 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 so right on because again, I love the three sixty. We are swimming in these waters, and so all of us are are putting these on. And so, 
if you are a white person who's wanting to, in relationship with your peers of color, and you're trying to debunk some of these myths, you may encounter the fact that you may be talking to somebody who has internalized that for themselves. So it's a complicating thing, but it's a thing that 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 we can only do in relation. I I I, I want to offer a few that I think are some that I'm, and I'm not, these are ones that I'm internalized, I have internalized over time. So I'm just going to be a real and raw and honest around it, right? Um, there, there is an internalized stereotype of, of language around Asian folks, right? Um, and these stereotypes, you know, show themselves in folks either over-explaining or, or changing how they talk whenever Asian folks are there, assuming that they don't speak the language. So I've seen the same thing around uh, my, my, my Latinx brothers and sisters. Um, and we do it too, right? So this is this assumption about what somebody should look, should, should, should think. And that assumption carries into even the language on 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 that goes out to, to various communities, right? There's I, I often will see that the language that comes to me um, in official documents and things like that, there carries with it also an assumption that somebody may not understand or 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 may not have uh, uh, experience with. There are these mental models there. Another one I want to offer for for debunking is I, we already said the black fathers thing, but there's a notion around um, sensitivity for black males, right? That black males don't cry. This machismo thing, right, is an issue, yes. But this assumption that we don't have the capacity or spaces where that doesn't ha- or that 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 happens um, is hugely problematic, and it is causing some 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 division things even within community this assumption that we that that does not happen it absolutely happens and again i come back to that thing i said before you just need to know black more black men right or you need to get out of a a, a monocultural space because it does happen in different places not to say that that's not an issue that doesn't isn't need to be worked on but that process of of saying of making the assumption of what I'm receiving may only be part of the story and therefore I need to hold space for more is 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 what I'm offering for folks to be in more often. Absolutely. Well, Anthony, yes, you, I'm, you just entered another whole realm, especially with the men don't cry thing, because now, now we're moving into ca- categories that kind of impact us across the board, regardless in terms of how we were genderized or how we were how we were raised. So that's another whole, I mean, you know, because the same holds true, not just in the black community, but that holds true for men across the board if they were born and raised in this country. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and it, and there's, you know, because I experienced the same thing. I was so, brought up the same way. It, men great don't topic cry. for the future. Right? I'm just, exactly. I'm just it's saying that, but, that, future, but, but yeah. that's not cultural. That's more genderized. That's how men. But gender is part of culture, though. So it's an element yeah, of that. But right? I'm just saying this is a different element yeah. that goes, that is a common thread through this entire Across. thing. Exactly. Yeah. And right. if, if that statement comes out your mouth, then, and there's not room to say, okay, well, what is the counter narrative or example of the, how that may happen differently than you think? That's the thing that we're asking folks to do when we talk about debunking and combating stereotypes. Well, we've gone full circle, which means it's time to wrap <laughs> it up. Uh, I'm going to add one more example um, to close us off with that I run into quite a bit that when people hear someone speaking with an accent, whether that accent has to do with uh, a country that is in Africa or, heck, in Europe, um, Eastern Bloc Europe, not so much Britain and and France, they get a pass, or uh, Latin America, Latino America, that somehow if a person has an accent, that it reflects their level of intelligence. And usually the stereotype is diminutive intelligence, meaning that person is less intelligent than simply because they have a stereotype uh, and, and nothing could be further from the truth because I put out a challenge out, out there. How many of us would venture to go into a brand new country, not knowing the language, not having a support system, more than likely, not having a job uh, and not knowing uh, the culture, go at, completely immerse yourself in that 
and learn that language and learn all the other aspects that I that I and navigate all the aspects that I just went through. Right. So keep that in mind. Right. That they might be struggling to speak to you in English in a perfect setting, meaning without an accent. But that in no way begins to uh, reflect their level of intellectual capacity. And in fact, they're showing and demonstrating to you that they have the intellectual capacity by way of the bold entrepreneurial move that they've made to come to a new country and learn a new language and immerse themselves in that way. Because I challenge any one of us to go to you know, any other country, uh, whether it's Sweden or whether it's um, uh, you know, uh, Buda, Buda, uh, Poland, I was gonna say Budapest, but Poland, I mean, any one of these areas uh, that that language is so different than English and see what you're like, you know, and I, I've, I've used that as part of my training very often. And and people honestly will say, I wouldn't have it. I, I, I don't have the strength or tenacity or grit to do that. And I want people to sit with that because that's the reality. And that's the credit uh, that people should be extending, the grace that people should be exp- extending to people who come here, immigrants who come here and learn a completely new language and navigate that space the way they've been able to do so. This is Counter Stories, programmed by people of color, for people of color, and everybody else. I'm Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the State of Minnesota. Any opinions and viewpoints that I've shared are strictly my own and should not be imputed to my employer. I'm Anthony Galloway, pastor of St. Mark AME Church and senior partner at Dendros Group. And I'm Don Eubanks, Associate of Dendro's Group and member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians. This has been Counter Stories, a co-production of the Counter Stories crew, the other media group, and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. For a full conversation, please visit counterstories.com.